Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. I mean, 200 species is a lot. And, and they face the risk of extinction because of our actions. People look at a wet, swampy, marshy area and they think, oh, well, they're, you know, we can improve that. Each year, an estimated 60,000 acres of wetlands, roughly the equivalent of 46 forest parks, are lost in the United States. That makes wetlands the most threatened ecosystem in the country. And in Missouri, agriculture, urban development, and flood control measures have replaced 87% of the state's original wetlands. As it happens, today is World Wetlands Day. So we've invited Shaw Nature Reserve's Restoration and Land Stewardship Manager, Mike Saxton, to share what makes wetlands crucial in our area and what's being done to create and preserve wetlands in this region. Mike, welcome to the program. Hi, happy to be here. So let's start with what wetlands are. Sure. So wetlands, in kind of the simplest terms, are any of our natural communities, our natural areas that are either temporarily, seasonally, or continuously inundated with water. Mm -hmm. So this is sometimes wet, sometimes not? Correct. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, there are a lot of different, I mean, there are a myriad types of uh, different kinds of wetlands. But normally, uh, in the big picture, we break it down with coastal and tidal, which of mm -hmm. course is not part of our habitats here. We're more of the inland, non-tidal type, right? Mm -hmm. In Missouri, we generally have marshes and swamps. Okay. Right? Two simple ways to break it down. Mm -hmm. And our marshes are those that are kind of more open and sunny, dominated by herbaceous plants. Swamps are the more, as you can probably imagine, the, the more woody, tree-filled uh, uh, wetlands are generally called swamps. Mm -hmm. And then what are some of the other ones that folks might miss or maybe not realize that we have? Sure. So the Missouri Department of Conservation categorizes nine different types of wetlands that do occur here in the state of Missouri. So those are the marshes, swamps, shrub swamps, so woody, uh, okay. woody shrubs, mm -hmm. bottomland prairies, bottomland forests, uh, oxbow lakes, which uh, we can talk about here in a bit, okay. and then riparian wetlands, so those wetlands that occur uh, along the banks of, of rivers. Okay, so oxbow lakes. Sure, so oxbows, um, an oxbow occurs when a river kind of self-corrects or, or humans straighten a river, and what used to be a windy uh, kind of S-shape turns mm -hmm. into a straight line. And so right over on the Illinois side of, uh, of the river, there's uh, Horseshoe Lake, okay. which another term for oxbows typically. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, insofar as seasons go, how do the seasons affect what we see, hear, or maybe even smell in wetland areas? Sure. So seasonally, um, you know, some wetlands are fed by groundwater. A lot of wetlands are fed by surface water. Uh, so one thing that wetlands do a great job of is help us with flood prevention and flood control. So it, during the rainy seasons, the wetlands can expand. They can uh, visually be much more you know, visible to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. Other times that water is subsurface and it's not readily, uh, readily seen. But our wetlands are breeding hot spots. So especially for, uh, for birds, for mm -hmm. reptiles, amphibians. So during the, the mating and the breeding season, 
it's a, it can be a raucous place to be. A lot of calls, a lot of birds, songs, um, reptiles, amphibians. Mm-hmm. Like so in the spring, what are we expecting? Yeah, a lot, a lot of birds, uh, especially kind of early in the spring, we get the the waterfowl migration. So mm-hmm. a lot of ducks, um, all kinds of ducks, not just kind of your mallards that you that a lot of people are, are envisioning. Mm-hmm. But um, and same with the, the the frogs. I mean, just a, a lot of noise coming in, but just a lot of activity, generally speaking. A lot of birds flying through the air, a lot of uh, songs and, and music in the in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe midsummer to early fall might not be the time people are, are thinking of seeing flora and and fauna. What is it that sort of pops up during that time? Yeah, the landscape, the, the color of the landscape changes tremendously, right? The wetlands are very green and lush in the growing season, right? And as just like the trees can change color, so so do the wetlands. They turn that kind of tawny, uh, light brown color, uh, the vegetation. Just it, it all changes very evenly uh, over the course of the season. And even in the winter, a lot of folks will think like, oh, well, it's kind of desolate out there. It's, it's not so colorful, but it's actually got its own kind of unique beauty to it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned spring being a big time for frogs, and there's one called the the chorus frog, which can be found at Shaw Nature Reserve, and their calls can be heard at the reserve starting in spring and into the summer. Let's hear a bit of that. So again, that's the, the chorus frog. Tell us a little bit about this creature. Sure. So they, they breed in shallow water. Uh, they're in all parts of Missouri, except really kind of the, uh, the boot heel. So down in the very Southeast corner of the state. Um, we like to tell folks that if you take a, a comb, like a hard toothed comb and you run your finger oh, over the comb, right. that's, that's the sound, right? You, you need a, a mechanism or a, a little mnemonic device to help you remember because there, there's a lot of calls out there to try to learn. And that's an easy way to learn that. Okay. One. And then spring peepers are another and they're adaptable, uh, when it comes to their habitat, but they prefer to reside in ponds. You may recognize the sounds of their call. And that, to me, it sounds like it could be a bird. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, there are certain sounds that when you hear it for the first time, like you might not have heard a spring peeper in nine months, but when you hear that first one, you know it, and it's a, it is usually a good indicator that spring is on its way or that it's, you know, that it's already here. Right. And again, I said it sounds like a bird because it is not. That is a, a frog. Absolutely. Yeah. They have the, the spring peepers, they have a little very distinct X on their back that mm-hmm. makes them pretty readily uh, identifiable. Yeah. Is it a small frog as well? They, they'll fit right in the palm of your hand. Oh, how mm. cute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there are other animals. Um, among those are, are birds and the American Bittern, which is rarely seen, has a, a unique and odd-sounding call. The American bittern sounds like a, a sound effect that we would use on, on the show. Um, it's a member of the heron family. It can be found at the Shaw Nature Reserve. Where else is this bird um, found or seen or, or heard? Sure. It is more likely to be heard than seen. They're very secretive. Uh, they have a wide range. They're not necessarily a rare bird by any stretch, but we don't see them frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is because they've got great camouflage. They're uh, kind of, when you would see one, they're short and kind of stout, 
but then what they'll do is they will elongate their neck and they have a very long neck, but and then they will put their bill or their beak straight upwards. So they'll go from a short, squat little bird to a long, thin bird with their beak pointed up to the oh, sky. And okay. then they blend in very well with uh, the reeds and the cattails and everything else in these marsh areas. Okay. So it's got some vertical. <laughs> Absolutely. And a thing that's quite interesting about them is they have yellow eyes. But then during the breeding season, their eyes turn the color of orange. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's a clear sign that something's... About mm-hmm. to go down. <laughs> so there are wetlands also on the Illinois side. Uh, talk with us, Mike, about the Cache River wetlands at the southern tip of Illinois. Yeah, the Cache is a it's a pretty stunning place. Uh, if you if you do a quick Google image search, you'll see a lot of times you'll see images of kayakers moving around these massive sycamores. Uh, or, sorry, sycamores. They're in the middle of a these cypress slough mm-hmm. rather, and so the cypress. This area was uh, owned by a by a paper company at one point, and this uh, this conservation organization stepped in and said, "Hey, how much is the value of these trees to you commercially? We'll give you that money. Don't cut these trees down. We'll protect this area." And that's how the Cache River uh, Cypress area was was protected. Mm-hmm. And even more than sort of the the cash value of that land, there is a, a distinction with the wetlands of the Cache River, isn't there? Uh, pertaining to like international sort of importance. Yeah, I mean, so the, these cypress areas, uh, you know, these they're massive trees. They're historic. They're they're very old. We only have one stand in in Missouri for uh, that our old growth, and those those mm-hmm. are down in, in down in our boot heel. Um, but yeah, the these these areas where the cypress occur, they sequester a lot of carbon. A lot of carbon goes into the ground there. So they're on a global scale. It is really important uh, for. You know, climate change mitigation and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the role of wetlands in our region with Mike Saxton, Shaw Nature Reserve's Restoration and Land Stewardship Manager. Mike, you were just mentioning uh, sequestration of carbon. Why is it that wetlands are so important? Um, and you know, what is it about where we are um, in the St. Louis region that puts existing wetlands at, at risk? Yeah, so peatlands, peat soils, uh, they sequester about two times as much carbon as forests do. And so we don't have peatlands here in Missouri, but that's on a a global scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those wetlands are a big driver of of carbon sequestration. Uh, You know, pre-settlement, Missouri had about 5 million acres of wetlands. And as you mentioned in the intro, that's down 87%. Uh, Part of the reason that we tend to lose wetlands is people don't understand their value, Mm -hmm. right? People look at a wet, swampy, marshy area and they think, oh, well, they're, you know, we can improve that. If we drain it, we can turn it into agriculture. If we fill it, we can t- put buildings on it right? mm-hmm. and we can improve that land. And so we're not always thinking about the, those ecosystem services that wetlands can provide for us. And why is it that people don't know much about wetlands? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think part of it is... Uh, especially the idea of swamps. Swamps, like, it usually has a negative connotation to people. Uh, mosquitoes, snakes, alligators, dark, impenetrable. And it's just not a place that always historically lended itself to kind of our, our human use, our human interaction. Mm-hmm. So unless you, as, as we know about a lot of things in life, unless you know it, know it understand it, you're not going to care for it, and you're not going to advocate for it. Yeah. So approximately 87% of Missouri's wetlands, you've mentioned that too, have been destroyed since the first European settlers began to carve a living 
from the state's woodlands and the prairies, bottomland forests. What factors today contribute most to wetland loss or destruction in Missouri? It would mostly be uh, commercial development at this point. Uh, And one of the reasons that this has become much more of a pressing issue today is because of a Supreme Court ruling from last year. So there was a a substantial ruling, uh, the Sackett versus EPA case. Uh, It stems from 2007, uh, a lawsuit in, in Idaho worked its way for 14 years until it worked uh, up to the Supreme Court. And essentially what this ruling did was it it eliminated protections for upwards of 50% of the wetlands across the entire country. Mm-hmm. So areas that would have been protected two years ago, as of last year, 50% Are, of them have lost mm-hmm. that protection. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? <laughs> well, it was, in simple terms, it was a windfall for developers, right? Because before they might have had to offset you know, their disturbance, they might have to, you know, do some wetland restoration in other areas, they might have to pay special permitting fees. And some of those, what would have been obstacles to development were cleared out of the way by uh, this um, interpretation of the of the uh, Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. So insofar as preservation and restoration goes, these two things are not the same. I think restoration sounds lovely, almost romantic, what is it that makes preservation uh, something that is is preferable, far preferable to restoration? Yeah, so this, this would apply not only, not only to wetlands, but to prairies and to, to our forested communities. Uh, these areas, they're old growth, right? We know what old growth means for woodlands. People associate that with, oh, that means something very special. We don't tend to think of wetlands as being old growth or prairies as being old growth. Mm-hmm. But some of these areas have been evolving and have been on the landscape for tens of thousands of years. So if we have a wetland that has been functioning as a healthy, diverse ecosystem, and we destroy that, and we say, oh, it's okay, we'll, we'll take this area over here, we'll, we'll just create a new one. Uh, it's a, it's a, a far cry from being as good or as biologically rich or uh, valuable as that original ecosystem that would have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So those mitigations are important. I mean, it is important to restore and to create in lieu of anything else, but keeping those intact, healthy, biologically rich, uh, older growth wetlands is very important. Mm-hmm. And protecting wetlands is important, not just for flood mitigation and carbon sequestration, but also to preserve biodiversity. Why is this to you something that we need to be paying attention to? Yeah, I think people have gotten the message, I think, in the last you know, five or 10 years about pollinators. I think I think we've heard that and, yes. and people understand that. And that's great. And that's really important because we've been able to say, well, economically, we get X value out of this, these pollinator services. So if I said, oh, well, we're losing these bird species, and someone said, okay, well, does that impact my daily life? Am mm-hmm. I going to notice that they're gone? Is that going to impact my pocketbook? And sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it could eventually in ways that we're not currently thinking about, right? So here in Missouri, uh, we, are, we have 200 different plants, plant and animal species that are threatened and endangered that utilize wetlands as their primary habitat type. So that's, a, I mean, 200 species is a lot, mm-hmm. and, and they face the risk of extinction because of our actions. Yeah. Now, Mike, I'm certainly not proud <laughs> to admit this, but I will because I think it's, it's an avenue to discussing you know, whys and whats. I did not know very much about wetlands or how endangered they are as an ecosystem before I started preparation for this segment. And I dare say I'm not alone in that. 
So I want to ask a question um, I think I asked a little bit earlier, but to put a finer point on it. What do you think accounts for lack of awareness about wetlands, especially in comparison to general knowledge about climate change? Yeah, I think a lot of times we don't, one reason we don't value prairies, one reason we don't value uh, wetlands a lot of times is because we don't interact with them. Forested communities, people recreate in forests, they associate, they, they think about that as being nature. They don't necessarily see that uh, this, you know, this wet place with that's all mired and mucky and that you know, it's hard to get to sometimes. They don't see the value there, right? And you know, as, in terms of climate change, we need a broad approach, right? Anything, because there's going to be no silver bullet to that. We need a broad approach. And so things like wetlands, which can be these biodiversity hotspots, these reservoirs for all this biologically rich uh, natural communities, if they just, they're serving that dual purpose of being um, mechanisms, mechanisms by which we can uh, mitigate climate, I mean, it's just, it's an added bonus there, right? Both of those things are really important. A lot of times people will focus on, we've got a, a climate crisis, but then they kind of leave off the fact that we also have a, a biodiversity crisis as well. And we need solutions to both of those, especially if they can be complementary, like wetland conservation. Mm -hmm. And just last month, actually, we talked about the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, you know, what's been achieved through that legislation since 1973. But we also discussed, you know, how much work still needs to be done. And you made that point about biodiversity crisis you know, to our producer, Emily Woodbury. I mean, apart from these big anniversaries, how do we get people to pay attention, Mike, or, or to care um, about wetlands? Uh, what is it that we can do? Right. Uh, you know, education, of course, is uh, for for most things, we have to get people to care, right? And getting people connected, that's probably the best way we can do it, right? So uh, a good example would be um, just north of St. Louis, the Audubon Riverlands area. Mm -hmm. It's a great site, has a great visitor center, has a lot of interpretation on the walls, has um, you know, binoculars for folks to come and look and see and observe and engage. And because it can be just abstract, right? I mean, sitting here in the studio, sitting here in downtown St. Louis, this idea of, oh, wetlands are so important. It's like, well, how do I even connect to those? Right. And so we have those resources locally, but we just have to get people connected to them. Yeah. Are there any wins uh, that you can point to in efforts around wetlands preservation or restoration uh, that sort of point the way to how we might do things in the future? Yeah, I think a, a good example of that would be when we look around St. Louis, uh, I'm thinking specifically of South Grand. You go to some of these intersections there with native plants. Mm -hmm. They're lining the streets. They're there for aesthetic beauty. They're there for pollinator habitat. They're there for stormwater uh, runoff, right, to capture that stormwater. And I think when people, a lot of times people ask, well, what can I, what can I do, right? It sounds like a big problem, and mm -hmm. I'm just one person, right? So uh, rain gardening is a great thing that people can do at their homes, mm -hmm. right? There are a bunch of resources out there, uh, Missouri Botanical Garden, various other resources. Uh, and it's it does a number of things, right? It gives you this aesthetically pleasing, biologically rich plant community right in front of your own home. It provides habitat for native pollinators. Mm -hmm. And it limits that runoff. It captures that water. It keeps it from going into the streams, uh, you know, down into the down into the sewer systems, et cetera. And we can keep that and we can promote native biodiversity and have a functional benefit to our to our wetlands. Mm -hmm. One of the things you also said to um, our producer was that 
one of the things that we can do is to vote. Talk about what that means. Yeah, conservation's tough because a lot of folks will say, well, you know, we have much more pressing issues. Certainly this doesn't have that big broad, like how, how can conservation affect my daily life? And without, because we need big solutions, right, to big problems. We need a, a lot of approaches. And, you know, there are, uh, voting is extremely important mm-hmm. because conservation, uh, like here in Missouri, it is, this is a good example. The Missouri Department of Conservation, great organization, has enjoyed a lot of the public support for many, many years, and MDC does does great work, and that's because the voters and the people of the state support them through tax uh, initiatives, through uh, engaging with all their programming, with visiting their sites, um, and that's just a way that we can be engaged. And you know, the, the challenge with voting, of course, is it can sometimes it's every four years, mm-hmm. right? And so, so in the intervening time, uh, people need to be engaged in, in other ways. But voting is extremely important to find those those uh, candidates, those parties that are supporting these kinds of conservation mm-hmm. efforts. And voting also then supports things like uh, what you all are doing at Shaw Nature Reserve with the Wolf Run Grassland Restoration Project. It's an area that was initially wasted farm ground turned forest, and it was a a forest with low biodiversity. Now you're working to do something else with it. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the, the Wolf Run Grassland Restoration Area. Uh, when the Missouri Botanical Garden acquired the land that would become Shaw Nature Reserve back in 1925, and you can see we're getting ready to celebrate our centennial um, Mm -hmm. next year. We're really excited about that. But this was 1,300 acres of what they described as wasted farm ground. So it kind of went through this, what we would call succession. So if you just let a field go, it doesn't turn into a biologically rich area. A lot of times it can turn into uh, an area full of invasive species and have that low biodiversity value. So we cleared out all the invasive shrubs, thinned out a lot of the eastern red cedar that had taken over the area, and now we've we're begun the process of kind of turning back time and look, looking, looking ahead, of course, as well, and thinking about how we can make these areas climate resilient, how we can make them biologically rich, how we can get those ecosystem services, and how we can promote uh, educational opportunities for, uh, for the public. Mm-hmm. So is the last question here, what would you suggest that uh, folks do uh, put on some galoshes or, I mean, and where should we go to kind of see and hear and experience what wetlands are uh, close to where we're sitting right now? Yeah, you know, one of the main um, types of wetlands, as we kind of spoke about earlier, are those riparian areas. And here we are, where the Missouri River uh, meets the Mississippi River. There is Confluence State Park, that's a great example, just north of the city. That Audubon Riverlands area that I mentioned earlier has great opportunities for education and, and interpretation and access for folks. And it, we have to be active. That's one of the challenges. Like to get out and experience these areas, we, we need to get out into the natural world. And places like Shaw Nature Reserve, uh, organizations like the Missouri Department of Conservation, uh, the, the Audubon Society, these are, uh, these are organizations dedicated to that cause. Mike, thank you so much for talking with us about that. Yeah. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. 
Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.